Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Uh, we had a couple week break recently, um, which I, I just wanted to let you know that that's an abnormal thing. Doesn't happen very often, but once in a while, there's just the combination of the right amount of circumstances. Many of you probably didn't. You have a zillion different podcasts that you listen to, may not have even noticed. But uh, I, I just wanted to let you know, it's just like some hiccups. Just had an episode, the episode coming out next week, which we needed to re-record because there was all sorts of tech issues. I redid the studio, but I made a bunch of changes that you won't notice. In fact, I'm, I'm still doing them um, this week. You, you won't uh, consciously notice, but little improvements that are uh, just making things go smoother, uh, which is going to allow for more highlights and slightly better quality and and things the average person is never even going to notice, but just kind of behind the scenes stuff. But I also had a I had a guest that had uh, had to cancel because of uh, 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 family issues that came up like uh, um, anyway, just some just th- a lot of things happen. May was a funky month for me with things kind of opening back up and figuring out what to do with touring. And I kind of have this new, I I've been figuring out where I want to uh, potentially move eventually and how to figure out my already uh, touring was very complicated the way that I did it with producing and marketing my own shows and essentially being my own roadie and everything and and, uh, doing uh, independent themed shows and now that I have not just this podcast that I've added video to, but also Mind Under Matter and the nine, epi- four public and five Patreon episodes each month that come along with that, all video, uh, figuring out how to pull all that off with touring in the way that I was previously, which was like, I guess I'd have to rework things and uh, what's COVID going to look like at the end of the year and came up with some new plans and exploring some uh, some n- new exciting possibilities that I should have some more info for you about in a month or so. But all that is to say that uh, I, I just thought I'd let you know that um, uh, cause I just disappeared for a couple of weeks. Just stuff happens sometimes. And I don't know if, uh, if May was kind of a funky month for um, some of you guys that are maybe reintegrating back into seeing people you haven't seen in a while and that sort of thing. And summer's here and I've been enjoying the weather. A lot of good things and a lot of just odd transitional liminal space as well that I think a lot of us are in. So just wanted to mention that, that you're not alone. If you, if you, if May was like an odd kind of funky month and you're like, why am I feeling so off when I should be Happy that the weather's nicer and that I'm seeing people and, and you know, I think it's just kind of a transitional time. I'm already feeling much better in June myself and uh, getting caught up on a bunch of things and planning out um, potential shows. also want to get some guests on soon that are uh, going to be talking about, um, you know, the vaccine and variants and that sort of thing to also just help me plan my my life a little bit better so and hopefully that will help you as well so we're back lovely to have you back this is a great episode of return guests and you always know when it's return guests 
they wouldn't be a return guest if I didn't like talking to them and I didn't think they had uh, a bunch of interesting things to say. So you know this is going to be a good episode. So enjoy it. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Return guest Kari Nixon is joining me today to talk about her brand new book, just came out fresh off the presses. Look, this one that I have, it says review copy, not Fancy. for resale. Look how special I am if you're watching on YouTube, which you probably aren't. And you'll also see, I know many of you are uh, listening on your favorite podcast app, which is also cool. But look at that. There's a little quote from yours truly there on yep. the back. I, I love this book, Quarantine Life from Cholera. To COVID-19, Kari is a professor specializing in social reactions to infectious disease. And really, I'm going to kind of let you introduce it because it's such a unique background. Um, you're, you're at Whitworth University, and the last time you were here, you, you were talking about you, um, uh, your uh, literature professor, correct, if yeah. I remember yeah. correctly, and just obsessively and interested <laughs> in diseases and obsessively going back through time, digging up everything you can find on people's, uh, what people were saying about um, their experiences through different pandemics over the last especially the last what like 300 years or so right yeah um i was gonna say you know i kept thinking as i was preparing for meeting again i was like we have to quit meeting like this like maybe one day once just once could we meet without there being a global crisis as the the impetus yeah yeah well uh, probably not no i uh <laughs> I'll, I'll, probably the next time I'm going to have you on is after the next variant pops up that is doing oh this and that. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, but well, this is, I mean, it was really good timing for us to meet one another. I'll say that. And it's great timing for this, um, for this book. Why don't you give the listeners for the people that didn't, by the way, listeners, um, one, I, I do recommend you going back to, Listen to the first interview. It's fantastic. And two, if you do that and we happen to repeat a couple things uh, here, forgive me. It's been a year. I don't remember all that we talked about and I cannot stand listening to my own voice. So I don't listen back to my uh, to my own show. Um, but uh, but Carrie, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background? Right. So Carrie, jeez, I keep okay. on saying it's right. Carrie. It's, uh, it's, it's Carrie. Really yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's tricky. Not, it's not that <laughs> tricky. I just have... you know what I've I've taken to renaming myself on all my Zoom meetings. Not a crook, Nixon. So maybe that would be easier. You know, I think you should that. just spell it with a C. Like I often put Shane M O S S just so just to make uh, it easier for people. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, anyway, it's totally oh, is it my Moss? fault. It's Moss. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. I would have said mouse. Yeah, most people do. And I think it's actually supposed to be pronounced mouse before uh, whatever recent generations decided to start mm. monkeying around with it and confusing everybody. So Right. 
Okay, so when we met about a year ago, um, gosh, the pandemic had just started, um, at least over here, it was affecting us. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, I mean, complete coincidence that I happened to have been studying the field of the history of, not really the history of diseases, but the history of public reactions to disease outbreaks. that was what my graduate training was in. That's what my dissertation was on. And I had just written a book that had just come out that month on the topic. Um, which It was just odd timing. Um, and so then we chatted a bit about that. Um, and we can cover some of those topics again if, if we want. But this book that from cholera to COVID is much more accessible to just anyone. Um, it's a very, very, very accessible uh, read. I, I, not not only would not only would any of the here we are listeners be able to um, understand it quite clearly, but it's easily something that you could give to a friend, a relative, whatever that is not generally interested in in science. But and it's also it's also kind of a cool way to. I find seems a lot of people are a bit more into history than they are into science. I think I think the history channel mm. has better ratings than the science <laughs> channel does. And I think that's just generally right. um uh, uh kind of a rule of thumb with the general public and this is a this is an easy way to because you get to hear about Victorian times and that and that sort of thing. There's no jargon. There's nothing overly technical in here. And, and nonetheless, there's just so much thought provoking content. And it's so incredible to hear these many things that we're trying to make sense of and all the parallels that there's been through time and through different generations. And even when technology and culture and other things were different, there are these uh, very um, universal ways in which humans tend to react to these situations. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned giving it as a gift and, and part of that, that was some of my goal is, you know, we've gone through this period. I mean, I've just talked to so many people who have lost touch with family members over, not just because of quarantine, but disagreements oh, yeah. about how we should be handling oh, this. like me and... I, I cut them right i don't i've read your book it's very it's very like hey let's come together and there's ways we can communicate <laughs> better and as i'm reading that i'm like yeah i think i'm gonna get on twitter and yell at people also here's the family members <laughs> i'm never going to talk to again <laughs> and... right well and and two things about that i mean on the one hand I meant for it to be a thing that you could, um, unlike my academic book, which, you know, I guess if you like quarantine life, then go find my greatest hits in my academic book. It's much less accessible. But quarantine life is meant to be not only informative, but something that you, I hate being told about a problem like global warming and nobody tells me what I right now can honestly do Mm -hmm. about that. And I mean, like, truly, like, don't tell me to recycle when, like, really, this is a bigger corporate problem yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Um, all the recycling's fine. Um, and so each chapter, along with its little history, has three actual takeaways for talking with other people about this or trying to understand their perspective. 
But actually, I was telling this to um, a local newspaper reporter that interviewed me. It's actually one thing, if I could get one message out through platforms like yours, it would be that I am not promoting niceness to, for the sake of being nice. Um, I say that a few times in the book, um, particularly because as I was writing this, the entire like George Floyd um, protest mm-hmm. had begun. And in my field, we often recognize that asking people to be civil is a way of quieting minority mm-hmm. viewpoints. So I make it very clear in the book that I'm not asking for, you know, be nice because, you know, we should just be nice. Rather, it's actually a bit more yeah. pragmatic, I think. Um, you said, again, that anybody could read this. You could give it as a gift. And I think one huge takeaway point I would like readers to come away with is that science is social. I think as the host of Stand Up Science, you can readily agree that, you know, science is only so good as we mm-hmm. can communicate it. And so for me, the coming together and getting along has a lot more to do with let's like get stuff done. Like let's find a way to stop spinning our wheels here, especially in a political moment where I don't think, I mean, I used to feel like, well, the government will like handle it. Like somebody will fix this. And I feel like most of us has, have lost our sense that anybody is going to fix yeah. anything for us. And if we're... <laughs> the people that are going to determine what happens, then we, I mean, I don't care if you like your aunt, but if you want to convince her to wear a mask, like right. here's, here's what you need to understand about right. her reasoning, you know? And, and I, I know that you get that, but I feel like there have been some times where I've been like purposely misunderstood in reviews, like, cause people are just angry that I'm saying, they think I'm saying, well, just be nice. And that's not, I'm saying like, here's how to get what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Persuading people of a, of a perspective and every, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously something like giving someone lottery tickets or free tickets to a concert or a beer ticket or whatever for getting a vaccine. It's it's like intellectually, there's an aspect of me from from just like a, a from a disease from a, a pure disease and vaccine standpoint. It's like, well, why would you to take a thing that's good for you and benefits others? Why do we need it? But but from a from a communication standpoint or whatever, like yeah, whatever. If you gotta buy people their lottery tickets, if you gotta if you if you gotta right. give people incentives, like here you get to sit in the special section of the baseball stadium if you have your vaccine. Like okay, well if that's if that's what works at the, at the at the end of the day is these carrots and sticks and i and i certainly know from first off i i use something like twitter as as a way to not communicate but just to vent personally twitter's not twitter's not gaining me any like followers or anything that much one way or another but um but i mm. i mean i i gain just as much as i lose so it doesn't it doesn't really it's always been that way um but it doesn't uh it doesn't matter that much to me but if my because i just at the end of the day i want somewhere to blow off steam sometimes but when it comes to communicating like on this show or it comes to communicating in front of a crowd or talking to relatives and the, if if your actual goal is to get more 
people to say mask more or follow some CDC guidelines or get a vaccine or whatever. Certainly, I can I can tell you from yelling at people many many times that yelling at people doesn't it doesn't work i've i've experienced it <laughs> yeah that's what, that's what i want people to take away is like i also <laughs> yeah, often yeah. yell at people yeah. like <laughs> like i mean i i think it would be easy to read this book sort of facilely and be like oh kari's just like the nicest no i am the most impatient grumpy person i am like mm-hmm. an old curmudgeon before my time so, yeah, it's it's not that I just think we should be nice. It, but, you know, I also think when things make me really, really angry, like uh, from I mean, in among other things, it's like why we won't do anything about mm-hmm. gun violence in this country. When you feel like nobody's handling the problem and you feel like we're just stuck and like we're getting like you could get shot anywhere. Sometimes when I'm that level of helpless and enraged, intellectualizing the problem feels like my only recourse. Mm -hmm. So even for somebody who has no interest in having a conversation with somebody else, I think it could help like just help you process or move Mm -hmm. beyond just feeling so angry to just even at least understand some of the psychological factors that go into this. I know for me that can help me when I'm in a place of intense emotional response. Well, I mean, I I can tell you that uh, I don't remember the exact date that we first talked and everything, but I've been on such a journey since that time and one of and one of the one of the big aspects of of what's happened during COVID is because of the various communities that I'm involved in outside of academia because of certain fan bases I have because of different podcasts of other people's that I've been on um I found out in a hurry that there's there's really um, uh, some aspects of the wellness community that are like really fired up in the COVID denial thing and anti-vax stuff and the snake oil selling and the supplement peddling. And I find it to be a bit of a relief in ways to see that you know, to look up some old ad in your book or whatever, that's, that's someone selling this and that cure all. And, Mm. um, and so some of those frustrations too, it's also, I found that reading your book helped me be like, well, okay, this is part of the human condition. This is some of these, some of these conspiracy things are are going to pop up and it helps to know for the the next time. All right, right, here we go. Get ready for the conspiracy stuff to pop up. Get ready for the snake oil. Get ready for the victim blaming. Get ready for the targeting of, of, uh, different groups and, um, and to see that that, has happened so many times through history is endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I would say, aside, you know, there's the conversational purpose. If you want to try to change minds, there's sort of processing and understanding if that's what you need. And yeah, I was going to say that other, like, I thought it was maybe just me. I'm glad to hear the more people than like that you also felt this. But, you know, for me, these people are so real, like, even though they're dead, like they were real people with hopes and dreams like you and me. And to see what they went through, I just on a deep level in dark, dark times and dark places in my life, 
knowing that I'm not alone, that like somebody else felt this at some point in human history. And on a more public level, like you say, these things happened and, and life went on. <laughs> Even when it seems to us, you know, if we were to assume this was a completely novel thing that had never happened before, we might assume, like, how could we ever get past this? But then when you look back and you're like, nope, like you said, this is just kind of the recipe for what humans are going to do. I also find that just it gives me a little bit of staying power um, in those that journey, like what you're saying in 2020. Yeah, well, uh, I I think that one of the, as we kind of hinted toward um, politics and uh, other issues that might feel outside of the conversation of viruses and pandemics and that sort of thing, there's also, and this might be a little bit of a recency bias, because I just went through your book again, and, and uh, it, this this happens in much of the end of the book, you point to a lot of issues where, um, uh, where I'd really like to have you share some thoughts on the many ways in which, actually, this this is a theme that happened several times through the, uh, through the ages, where um, people... You don't use I don't think you used the phrase like just world hypothesis or anything or victim blaming necessarily in your in your book. But that was kind of what it was mm-hmm. making me think of. Well, while I was looking through some of the things through history where right. essentially kind of as almost a psychological self-defense, we like to think that bad things are going to happen to other people, other being other countries, other skin color, other sexuality, other age groups, other physical health, other uh, other weight, and and then we don't kind of we we, we kind of get to tell ourselves a story that we're we're safe if that's the case, and and it has, and which which there's there's nothing wrong with wearing lucky socks and thinking that you're going to have a better day because of it if you're you know doing everything else right or or whatever else but when it when it gets dark is when you start um saying things like hiv is only um affecting homosexuals or or things like that can you talk a little bit about that concept and and the some of the times that has happened through history Right. I like the way you draw the connection to the just world theory or um, that like people essentially. Yeah. Um, Because I think that that's a nice way of explaining. I think it's like it's definitely the logical leap that allows for this belief that it won't happen to us. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's conscious, you know, that we think, well, that person deserved it, but we certainly don't think we deserve it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that underlies so much more of our relationship to disease outbreak than we realize. And so we're missing the implications of that, that, that could revert back to the just world theory and explain that like, oh, this is just your bias. Right. But we, because it's within these days within the veil of scientific explanation, we often just take it for granted as it just is. 
a credible, responsible scientist would not say that HIV is something that predominantly is um, affects the homosexual population, male homosexual population. But why I presented some of those histories is to show that, like, even as late as the 1980s, this was still happening, and it was happening in the way we framed our research questions and our data mining. And so, you know, I'm never saying that science is wrong or useless, but if we can be aware of the potential for these biases, then we can make our epidemiological science better. Um, And there are very clear and obvious ways that we can look back on the way data was being reported in the 80s. It it saw what it was looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, It saw this cluster in a a male homosexual population. But I I think I even mentioned, if you look at the real numbers, and this is is, a different person's book that I'm citing, but there wasn't an overtly huge number disproportionately to other populations. And what I kind of hope to demonstrate is that if we can see this happening from 1720 to 1820 to 1920 to 1980, it sure as shit still happening in 2020. Yeah. It's just not as obvious to us because by definition, we see these things in retrospect. And so I sort of see my job as trying to raise awareness to the ways in which we could possibly be making similar misassumptions today. One source that I use in that chapter on HIV made a really good point. And and I'm glad he said it and not me because I always get kind of attacked when I make any sort of critique about the field of epidemiology, which I love and respect. I think we all have biases and we are all human actors and we're, you know, we're only as good as the methodologies, which could get better. But this scholar of HIV said that the problem is epidemiology by definition is looking for in-group, out-group differences Mm -hmm. to determine what is defining the sick versus the well in this case so that we can identify risk factors. And that's, I think we can all agree, important and necessary, but we should be very cognizant of the fact that by that being the definition of what they're going to do, there are going to be times where they identify a marginalized group when they shouldn't have, Mm -hmm. because that that affects how we see in-group versus out-group practices. I mean, so it's like this odd overlapping of categorical thinking that can at times make epidemiological science kind of a tool of racism without its ever intending to have been initially. Well, probably at, you know, yeah, yeah I, well, I, I think just <laughs> I, I think categorical thinking generally is just an easy um, kind of default that it, you know there there's there's kids in different colors that categorize colors differently on on the on the color spectrum because that's what they were shown the the rainbow looks like in in their culture and and their brain has wired as such to differentiate blue and green at at this line within the and this is the green category and this is the blue category whereas a different color might have that different line and it's intuitive to us that those are different things that aren't touching that aren't blended together and and there's a lot of utility in that and from from efficiencies within you know processing our our uh perception and then and then sometimes we overuse that 
tool and exactly. and make these exactly i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff with uh like like i love gender difference research yeah i think it's really fascinating and i do actually find it to be somewhat therapeutic and explanatory and but at the end of the day there's also some of it where you're talking about men are five percent more this way than women are but it's a it's a difference and because you found this difference it gets kind of blown out of uh out of proportion and it's it's just so much more tantalizing or something it's it's more exciting to see that as a headline too and and it's it's right. part of just which i also discuss um i think around the same time in the book that i talk about these clickbaity mm. headlines and and how that's taught people to treat science as this overarching force instead of like, I mean, you know, a lot of scientists and some of my best friends happen to be scientists. It's like, if you know them, you know that this is just a lot of people with fatigue and busy schedules and screaming kids working at lab benches and usually debating the findings, Mm -hmm. right? This is why we have peer review because like, just because a scientist did it in a science lab doesn't make it good research. Mm. And and when uh, scientists actually tend to agree with me more that um, they don't like the way the pro-science lay public has misrepresented sort of in this sort of branded influencer marketing style that like science with a capital S is some sort of monolithic clear-cut thing instead of a lot of messy data that they're having to interpret, you know, through various mm-hmm. means. Um, and so, yeah, like one thing I critique is these articles that like they make they make a finding seem so much more momentous than mm-hmm. it is. Um, I I went down a rabbit hole the other day, even though I know better than to really worry about thing- headlines like this. There was one that said, you know, study shows that parents of daughters get divorced more. And. I have two daughters. So I was like, Oh God, (laughs) like what's happening. And and it was like the tiny, I mean, it was like a half percent difference. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Another one I saw when I was pregnant was like, if you drink X amount of coffee when you're pregnant, um, your kid has this much percentage increased chance of leukemia. (laughs) And you know, these are things that you can find then if, if you translated it to real numbers, it's like, maybe one more person in either study out of a million. Um, uh, uh, meanwhile, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you can, I'm, I'm sure if they studied it, they could see a uh, direct correlation between the number of horrifying uh, headlines that you read in a lifespan and, uh, and the longevity. <laughs> yeah, heart, heart disease. disease probably. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, right. Um, but but there's I mean there's going back to using history to kind of see these more nuanced things within the human condition where connecting 5G towers with with covid or something like that might seem like a very very novel crazy thing um but but the the basic ideas and psychology that gives rise to that sort of thing has happened through every pandemic through history of people just trying to correlate, especially before germ theory. Why is this leading to this? And and then right. and knowing about some of these biases that we might have, if you take something like I've 
I mean, in my in my lifespan, I remember I remember 15 years ago or something. It wasn't I mean, it was an attention grabbing headline nonetheless, but evangelicals would often blame um, homosexuality for hurricanes which is like, <laughs> they'd, be like uh, they'd be like, well, that's clearly God's punishment for homosexuality oh, or whatever, which to anyone now seems like an absolute ridiculous uh-huh. thing. But then if you look at it and you look through history, we've all through, it, it, not all, but it's been an aspect of human nature for people to find ways to distance themselves from the vulnerable from the the cause right. of things and and so so now you see something like um the chinese virus or mexicans are going mm. to take all our jobs or whatever else and and someone listening right. might be like well mexicans are taking a bit of uh, jobs but you need to you need to look well well you can see how ridiculous that explanation can get like uh-huh. no one believes that gays cause hurricanes anymore now apply that same thinking to maybe we have a little bit of an aspect in that in our interpretation of of reality today that's throwing us off and and making us um uh, uh, uh judgmental or biased or or creating stereotypes that are doing more harm than good And it's hard to see in our own day and age. I mean, why I love the Victorians largely is because, you know, they're they're in so I think I probably did say this on the original the the first time I chatted with you. But like there are some things they do that are so deliciously weird that it's so easy to look at them and be like, no, dude, that was that was an odd idea. And it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So it's this nice little convenient example of the logical fallacies that you can fall into. But the Victorians are also such a close time period, relatively speaking, in history. You know, they had Petri dishes and microscopes and telegraphs and railways. So they're a more comprehensible society, I think, to us than um, 1100s France. Mm -hmm. And so they're this nice, I always use their example because they're so unfamiliar and yet familiar that I hope it can train us to, nobody, I mean, there's things that I'm never going to know that, you know, that that are our missteps that we're logically getting wrong. You can't figure them all out. But I would hope that we could build a society where we can learn not just from the individual mistake, right? Like we want to say like, well, scientific racism, the 1800s practice of saying that, you know, there were scientific reasons why whites were the superior race. We kind of have a tendency now to want to say like, well, yeah, that was wrong. The idea was wrong. So let's never have that idea again. But we don't want to look at the root causes, like you said, in-group, out-group thinking, the idea that bad things won't happen to us. Um, We don't seem to want to apply the general thought processes that got us there and try to avoid those. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the only way to avoid it in the here and now, because the actual scientific concept is, is only as good as the people making it. So how else could we know now instead of a hundred years from now that we've gotten something vastly wrong? Mm. Um, I Here's a random question. This isn't in your book at all, but it has to do with Vic- Victorian era and maybe, 
I don't okay. quite remember. Was was Tulip Mania? Was that during the fact? Do you know Tulip Mania? I've never heard of this. What? <laughs> oh well, do you want to hear? Me about How about it. I teach yes, you yes. something? Yes. Yes. Um, no. So it was uh, Tulip Mania. It was uh, during here. I just I just Googled it. Um, it, w- it was during the Dutch Golden Age. It was about conspicuous consumption, essentially, and uh, and hmm. I'll I'll just kind of uh, recall off the top of my head from here. But basically, um, you, you, conspicuous consumption being this this way of much like kind of peacock feathers, humans can incur costs upon themselves in this really costly way to uh, to advertise just how good they are. At, accumulating resources or how many resources they have by kind of essentially burning them in this celebratory fashion. And uh, tulips were uh, this, this thing at the time that there's this period of time where, where I guess these tulip bulbs were hard to get a hold of. And so if you had tulips in your yard, it was like, Whoa, that person has tulips. And so, Next thing you know, there were these huge uh, ways of it was this big way of of advertising your your wealth and tulip bulbs were selling for just these astronomical and kind of the stock price of of tulip bulbs were through the roof and then they bubbled and uh, and crashed. And I've, I've just kind of been thinking about it with uh, NFTs and stuff that have been happening. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, and th- things throughout. Uh, I'm sure there was stuff like that in the Victorian area. But uh, anyway, it has nothing to do with um, pandemic well, stuff. I-, I am an associative thinker, so I think it does because I think when I'm not critiquing human biases and binary categorical thinking, the other thing I'm often thinking about is how we've been socialized to want or desire certain things. I mean, I critique capitalism a lot. And so, Mm. I mean, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head. Yes, I can. Oh my gosh. Like tuberculosis was fashionable in the 18, up till the 1830s. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, and there's a variety of reasons. What, what, what do you, what do you, uh, let's break that down a little bit for okay. me. Um, okay. It's a little bit complicated, but it's a really neat way in which the biological and the social affect one another. So tuberculosis, like particularly compared against other diseases at the time, which, you know, were generally like GI bugs that would kill you. So that's like very disgusting, right? Like your yeah. innards are coming out. Compared to that, TB could look rather gentle. Um, it wouldn't to us today, but it, it was slower and it's like it might kill you slowly over a decade. And you might get like a little bit fevery and you'd have a cough that would get worse, but you'd also get kind of pale. And remember, particularly in Britain, like where they had a lot of it. Uh, they're basically white supremacists, right? So they like actually don't have a problem with being super pale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, they turned the fact- a, they turned a bug into a feature. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, gosh, basically because of that, and because before germ theory, it, it more than other diseases was very confusing. They just couldn't figure out how you got this disease. 
Um, they discovered the bacteria for it, identified it under the microscope in the 1880s. And yet people were still debating whether it was genetic or contagious into the 1915s. That's because it's actually really not a very virulent bug. It's actually kind of hard to get. And so it just had less obvious contagious transmission, if that makes sense. Not only not only is it hard to get, but but it's uh, it, it can a lot. Of, there's a lot of asymptomatic spread attached. to yes. it, And there's a lot of um, delayed. Uh, exactly. D- delayed. Um, initial symptoms and stuff. Exactly. COVID COVID's not the first time that there's been yep. asymptomatic spread and yep. and uh, um and so because this was it was just a little bit less clear than you know that baby had the chicken pox mm-hmm. and it licked my baby and now my baby has the same markings. It just you know it would be like you and I shook hands and then a decade later I got tuberculosis from you. I'm not going to remember. You know, so it was so. Right. Um, hard to pinpoint the pathways, and it seemed rather gentle. And for that reason, people were, like we talked about just a few minutes ago, they were coming up with whatever explanation they could. Um, It was a very prevalent disease in the 1800s, and so, you know, naturally, they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, Around the early 1800s, the poet John Keats, who was a doctor and a poet, got tuberculosis. And from there, he didn't really start it, but he sort of helped build this idea that maybe tuberculosis affected, like it was almost more maybe psychosomatic, like the way if you get depression, you could get chronic pain. Hmm. They felt like it was a disease that affected sensitive souls who were not strong enough for the cruelties of this world. And then that sounded kind of fancy. And so the rich people were like, I want to be like that poet guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, not to mention that it had these markers of like pale skin. Um, and so, I mean, there's a, a scholar, I cite her in the book. Her name's Carolyn Day. She's written a whole book about tuberculosis fashion industry in wow. the 1800s. And so she talks about how there were powders. That's kind of... At, I don't know if this is the first time we had powders, but they definitely began to make powders that were marketed to make you look tubercular. And then, of course, you would get the fever, which made your cheeks red. So, like, they would make rouges. Um, And they also know this is the coolest thing she does in the book. She traces, you know, those big, like, sort of the big hoop skirts and stuff they have. You think of the fashion. She noticed that in the 1830s, which was sort of maybe it was the 1817. At the height of tuberculosis fashion, they would make dress silhouettes where the corset would make you kind of slouch, <laughs> which happens to tuberculosis patients. You get these stooped shoulders. Amazing. And then right after this trend passes, the dress, the cor- corset forms don't do that anymore. Wow. Yeah. Starbelly sneeches with diseases. I know. Okay, do you know how hard it was for me not to write about the Starbelly sneeches in quarantine life? Well, why didn't you it write about the Starbelly sneeches? I, <laughs> I felt like not enough people like knew it. And then, of course, in the midst of all this, Dr. Seuss got canceled. And, yeah, yeah. But it it is just like... Really, he said it like people are just going to be haters about whatever they can find to be haters about. And like and then if you if you mix it up, then they're going to want. Oh, my God. He said it all with the star belly sneeches. Yeah. And I mean, it does. 
it does it does feel like there have been people at at the height of covid when things were when things were really ramping up i mean there was there was covid parties and stuff which is an extreme you know attention grabbing i'm sure it wasn't happening that often that someone with covid you'd go to a party and try to get yourself covid because you're dumb person in their 20s or whatever but um but i did get the sense that even just from some people that i had talked to and extended family and stuff i felt like there was people that were damn near on a mission to get covid as part of their like party loyalty or something like that and and i I mean that might be an unfair assessment but um i'm debating saying this out loud did you notice a tendency for people and i I don't know if it was i don't want to say or even imply that they were trying to be fashionable but there was this kind of discursive or rhetorical tendency around like 2020 in the fall for people to just in passing be like, well, and I know I had COVID like for sure I had it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and if you ask them, you know, they didn't have a test or necessarily a family member that had it that they, but like, and, and, and I'm not trying to say that they just wanted to feel special. I mean, they very well could have had it, you know, that's, but yeah. it was an interesting, like need to say that actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever encounter that? It really stuck out to me at a moment. Yeah, I, I don't fall. know. I mean, I never attribute it to um a kind of advertising. I did I do think that there was something um going on there that in the beginning of it because uh, I I do think that there's um like you said, depression can lead to pain. I do think that if you are consciously um you know, ingesting information about uh, right. disease, um, all the, and you're not used to doing that. I I think that there's some autoimmune stuff that could start firing up, and because there was a lot of reports of allergy-ish sounding symptoms around that time, of like itchy eyes and like scratchy throat sort of thing, and I think it might have been a little bit psychosomatic. Um, you know, so, my so it might have been in. Con- combination of that that psychoneuroimmunology is a a legit thing yeah and i'll leave it to audience discretion why people think he was saying that to me but um, but what you're saying is apparently like kind of a given consensus in the medical community these days yeah i'm a big fan of this hygiene hypothesis and stuff long before covid that i was very interested in and how it might be shaping our psychology um but uh but anyway um i i going back to could you talk a little bit about some of the um oh i don't know exactly where i want i have three different directions here well let's just start with asymptomatic since we've already touched on that one a little bit because that's one of the things that i was fortunate enough to already know as someone that's interested in evolutionary biology i already kind of understood the logic of of a, of a virus that is less virile being able to exist in a host for longer than one that right. 
takes a host out right away and makes a host explode into vomit and diarrhea in front of everyone and everyone runs away screaming. And, but what a, I mean, now knowing what we know about life, which uh, the Victorians didn't have a good understanding of Darwinian thinking. And also, let's see, when was, when was Darwin and when was Victorian? 1859. But we can talk about that. They, yeah. <laughs> oh, I would love to, but, but also they, they wouldn't, they certainly wouldn't know. Um, they, they wouldn't know evolutionary psychology, d- disease avoidance stuff in a way of, in a way of to explain to someone, Hey, we've been shaped. The reason why, you seeing someone sneeze or hearing someone cough, uh, cough or whatever, you have the natural aversion to that, which can also be shaped by the environment when there's COVID going around in the news or whatever else. But the reason why you have natural aversion, the reason why puke is off-putting or feces is off-putting to you is because those ancestors that avoided those things it, uh, and had a preference to stay away from those things tended to leave more prod- uh, progeny behind and do better and survive better. And and those things aren't always accurate. They're, they were just a, a rule of thumb that evolved through th- time that was pretty useful. That is to say that not every cough is going to infect you with something and, and you don't need to scurry at the first sign of, of any... Um, any kind of dirt or or filth or something like that necessarily but um but knowing knowing that and then and then considering what the human mind thinks of of a healthy person i can understand why people uh come up with sort of ridiculous explanations for well this thing isn't showing a symptom it's kind of like car sickness where you weren't you weren't evolved in a in a moving container that rolled you around through space so your eyes weren't ever moving well your ears or your ears weren't ever uh and sense of balance weren't moving while your eyes were looking at a dash and felt stationary and this this mismatch makes your brain go hey why is there this mismatch or did we eat something poisonous or something like that should we ready ourselves to throw up and and you start feeling nauseous because of that and you can't kind of consciously tell your brain oh no i'm not sick right now i'm just driving i'm just in the passenger seat you can't really explain that to your brain and in that same way um we haven't we just simply haven't evolved to detect asymptomatic spread of things and being told you you made this great point in your book about how we've been um as americans we've been told for so long that to listen to our bodies and trust ourselves and now you have something that's asymptomatic where you shouldn't listen to your body your body can't right. detect something that's asymptomatic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I really like the car sickness example. Like it just, and like I said, like, I, I mean, you may not want to talk to, you know, that uncle or whatever, and, and you don't have to, but uh, I think we're not getting the full picture. If we just say it makes no sense why that's hard to swallow because each and every one of us, you can, I cannot 
believe that there is somebody out there like who is an exception to this that we've been like but I feel fine and like maybe we may not go out still we may listen to the rules and listen to authority and say no I have to stay in but we've all had that moment in our heads where we're like but my body says I'm fine you know um Mm -hmm. and I think you know for me that's a unique perspective I have because like I never, I'm always like, I live in kind of perpetual fear of the mystery of my body. So like the whole, like, listen to your body has (laughs) always. That's a funny statement. (laughs) Well, that is actually a topic for my next public health book, which we can talk about (laughs) next year. (laughs) But so I've always hated that phrase, like, listen to your body. I'm like, I don't know. It's like, like. I don't, I'm a black box. Like I'm not, I don't have an MRI machine. Listen to my body. Bodies tell you all kinds of weird stuff. You my know? body tells me to eat Cheetos and things like that I all know, the time. Actually, I mean, it's wondrous, but it's not like a supercomputer. Like, or like those things like in yeah. your car where you take it in, it yeah. like has an error and you take it in. They're like, here's what it means. You know? Why would I, if I was truly listening to my body, why in the world would I ever do a push up? or run like go for a a five mile run in a circle like that's not my body's idea (laughs) yeah exactly and so you know i think although of course i was one of the people that stayed home and i tried to listen i think also like Mm -hmm. it's obviously going to be a huge public messaging shift Mm. because we've spent years especially like women being being like do your checkups like know how you feel and now we're like no 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 <laughs> everything you thought like is wrong mm-hmm. it's a huge marketing shift you know and so it, and like i like how you said like we just really haven't evolved to like know that or detect it and so i think that's harder for everyone than people want to really admit even though i think and then i almost feel like then it kind of diverts back to like either your tolerance for authority or um, as I cite a study in the book, sometimes it goes back to just reverting to the safety of your in-group social thinking, Mm -hmm. what the people around you are doing, because this is all so scary. And so you're going to do the social thing that sounds safe, you know? So I think it's so much less about like people wanting to be just, I don't know that it's always as much about people saying, I don't care about your rights as much as them being presented with new and scary data and kind of reverting back to what feels safe to them, whether that's an anti-authoritarian attitude or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you work, uh, you do, uh, you know, research for a living and I have been able to, um, you know, I, I've been able, I, I was in a fortunate place eight years ago where I could take my career in any direction that I wanted. And so I had the free time to, uh, pursue my interests and read more about this stuff and everything else. But it is, it is asking a fair amount. If I'm being honest with myself, it is asking a fair amount of people to, uh, you know, understand something that is so counterintuitive against their own intuition that requires a fair amount of learning. I mean, I think I get super irritated when someone does 
like five minutes of YouTube research to validate whatever nonsense and then uses it to right. uh, to deny all of science because they found a YouTube video that sounded more compelling and regular old scientific progress is boring by comparison. Um, which, I mean, it's the same reason why finding Bigfoot is on the animal planet rather than animal documentaries right. or whatever. But... Um, but well and this is oh sorry well i mean it's also uh, the other thing was think like so you you had this com i didn't i didn't go out during covid but from what i could gather from friends that would do shows and stuff it wasn't you know it was louder drunker rowdier populations of people than normal that were going out so you have you have people that are basing a lot of their judgment on intuition rather than actual experience and knowledge you have another situation where no one wants to feel dumb people have this thing like well if i'm wrong that makes me dumb it's like no it makes you inexperienced it's like i'm I guess I'm dumb when it comes to jet engines. I don't know how a jet engine, it doesn't make me dumb as a person to not know how right. jet engines work. And there's something about science where people take it very personally if they don't understand virology or something, which is an insanely complicated um, thing. And so then you have right. like this Dunning-Kruger effect where the most confident people are the ones that know the least. And then those people are going to be the loudest in any social situation. I know this because I have a loud Dunning-Kruger-ish side of my my family. And then because the, the loudest then that loudest person does have an impact on the rest of the social group going around and you like kind of don't say anything. And then it's like, Okay, well, is that what our group believes? And then once it's a part of what your what your group identity is, there's not much turning back from there because now you have motivated reasoning and then confirmation bias. You get dug in, sunk cost right. effect or fallacy or whatever, yep. and it just, whew, it sure... <laughs> Because people have gotten pretty far off track uh, through all of this, and it's it's kind of it's kind of breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point again, that's why I, I think if we dig to the psychological motivations here and now, then it, like you said, perhaps we get ahead of this curve of it being the standard way of thinking, and we we have all these blockages to reversing a belief. Mm if we could like get it at the outset <laughs> before it gets constructed. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the, uh, the history of vaccine hesitancy? Oh yeah. Um, so this is training I mostly received um, from one of my dissertation advisors, Rajani Sudan. Um, and we know that lady Mary Wortley Montague was one of the first people who brought vaccine technology over to Britain. Now, the kind of funny thing is, is that we know that inoculation or vaccine techniques existed prior to that in East Asia, South Asia, and Africa. So my joke is like basically everywhere except Western Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and then as it was taught to me by my uh, mentor, Rajani, um, uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague brings this technique over 
a technique she's seen in Turkey conducted by Greece, uh, Greeks. So it's kind of doubly foreign and it was a female like folk medicine practice. Mm -hmm. So she brings this thing over and she's like, Hey guys, maybe we could all stop dying a second if we would do this thing I saw. And pretty much everybody is like scoffing at her because this is a foreign technology. It doesn't come from, you know, her majesty's empire and it's a technology of women. And I mean, it's legitimately kind of gross and threatening. Um, mm. You know, you, you're taking a society where kind of maintaining like the security of your body was about all you had because once you got te tetanus, let's say, you were toast, right? Like there was no coming back from tetanus. So you're mm. trying to just like not get into a scrape, um, pun intended, because what you did with inoculation at this time was scrape uh, a sore from a smallpox victim and like kind of scoop the pus out and then cut your arm and smear it in. So, I mean, I think people today would <laughs> hesitate to do yeah. that to their babies. I mean, we have vaccine hesitancy today, so obviously we would, but then you had all these compounding factors of it being a foreign and a female technology. Um, and that's been sort of the scope of my mentor's work. Um, what she also says, and I just love this point, is that it, so it's the kind of the stolen technology, right? Like she finds it in these lands that Britain prides itself on being better than. Um, and it seems to have always existed everywhere but Britain. And then Britain is like, that's weird. We don't like it. It's foreign. And then a few years later, Jenner takes it using cowpox instead of smallpox pus and makes it vaccination. That comes from the VACC for Latin for cow. Um, prior to that, it was inoculation because it used a live matter from mm. a sick person. And according to Rajani, I love the way she puts this. It's essentially a rebranding. They sort of scrub its history clean, stamp it on as British, and now it's, you know, the story is that Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was admittedly awesome, but now we say, well, she was the flagship, you know, the forerunner of modern Western medical miracles. Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, actually, these were everybody else's standard technology, and we were actually really behind. And, um, and th they scoffed at it, they ridiculed it, and then once it worked, they were like, yoink, it's ours now, and it's going to be a marker of our prowess mm. um and, but didn't yeah. it didn't it also take around 70 years from the time that they had they had kind of a solution to the time that it was widely accepted um or or just yeah i always forget the exact dates of jenner's i want to say so montague was 1720 i'm just gonna google jenner because i always get it wrong i don't even want to hazard a guess Hazard a guess. That's a phrase I should use more often. <laughs> What'd you say? Seven, no. Oh, sorry. I wanted to say 1790. Like, I think you're right that mm. it was almost exactly 70 years. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I always think that and then I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, no, 1790s. Yeah, so it was about 70 years. And yes, that's when it became even more widespread mm. um, with Jenner. Um 
And one way to look at that is that it was rebranded um, as this sort of British technology. And I can definitely say that, you know, using the cowpox from British dairy cows, like British dairy cows are considered, it's like almost a little bit akin to the bald eagle for America. Like it's just like good old, like pure Britain in their dairy cows. So there's definitely this like nationalism in sort of marketing them around cows specifically. Mm-hmm. There is also the fact that using cowpox was less dangerous than using actual smallpox. So just like with tuberculosis, there's always this biological reality that's informing the social interpretation and vice versa. Mm. So I am curious, what what was the, what, do you know anything about the responses to other vaccines in the past, like measles or polio or other like flu shots or anything like that. I, I, I think that probably at the time, though, people were so impacted by those things that it was a maybe a little bit of an easier um, sell in some ways because they, right. they were you, you make the you make the case in your book that uh, in our modern world um, and, and and really since germ theory. People have kind of been, uh, you know, someone someone impacted by diseases. Usually, we aren't living with them. Where you know they're in a hospital and then they're kind of out of our sight and out of sight, out of mind, and we don't need to we don't need to necessarily directly see the impact. And and we we kind of gained more control over these diseases and kind of were able to tell ourselves this story that that uh, now having to, rather than having to live with disease and disease being a regular part of our life, we can kind of be like, I didn't order that life and give like a nasty (laughs) Yelp review to diseases. No, thank you, COVID. Right. Um, That's a really good way of characterizing. (laughs) We all just kind of expect to be immortal now and, and, um, and, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I'm not personally aware of smaller, like, resistances to individual vaccines. I know people who might be aware. But um, what I can say is that throughout history, normal, it's like the star-bellied sneeches, normal human power dynamics like anything else are inflected mm-hmm. through vaccine technology and usage, just like anything. So, um one of my favorite memoirs by Anne Finger, it's called An Elegy for a Disease. It tracks her life with polio, but it's also a social history of polio. And what she says in the opening of her book is that polio is perhaps one of the most endemic diseases to humanity ever. Um, We see engravings of it in Egyptian sarcophagi um, with bodies that look like they probably had polio. it was pretty natural to everywhere in the whole world throughout most of human history, but we only cared enough to make a vaccine when it started affecting middle-class white America. Mm-hmm. So there's a good example. Um, another example still using that vaccine is that um, we no longer use the live polio vaccine in America. We use a killed version of the virus. Um, because there are known complications with the live version, but mm-hmm. we still export that to third world countries and give them that mm-hmm. vaccine. 
Um, I have to be kind of careful in how often I say that statistic because I think it, it, it has been often weaponized by anti-vaxxers mm-hmm. to prove, you know, vaccines are dangerous. But what it really proves is that white people are racist <laughs> and well, will I, give things that they know to be hazardous to other populations. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that in and out group biases are an absolute, uh, you know, obviously a, a big thing for everybody. And then when you compound that with, with power and authority, it, uh, it turns out pretty, uh, pretty ugly in a, in a given situation. So I, I mean, right. that is to say that I don't think it's an, inherently anything white i think it's inherently something that's about in and out group and uh and authority and and power and having um uh having power over people that leads to lots of uh corruption and and uh discrimination and everything else right um so I, i was just hoping that there was some parallel to like the bill gates microchip stuff through history but we might be certain. Uh, well, I mean, I think the fear then was just like, I mean, you're putting an actual pathogen in your body, you know? Right, right. So it, now we've kind of moved on from worrying about that to worrying about like chemicals and toxicities. And I think, I do think these things just change with the age. Um, the newest technology tends to be the thing we fear, right? And so now that's like surveillance things and, and uh, cybersecurity. And I think back then it was just a little bit more basic. Um, but for instance, one thing, I was a, in psychology before I was in English, and um, I always found it fascinating to learn how um, schizophrenic psychotic delusions changed over history. Mm. Um, I never got to research it as much as I wanted to, but you know, it's very common now for those sort of hallucinations to be about um, somebody watching you through the TV or through radio waves. Mm. And there's so many stories in the 1700s, thereabouts, it might even be earlier, might be earlier, of people thinking they're made of glass or having psychosis where they think they've eaten glass and are full of glass inside. And it wow. struck me when I started reading these accounts that I think that's because glass making and glass blowing at whatever time in history this was, was newer. Mm. And, and so that's what was on their minds, just like surveillance. So to your point, I, I do think that vaccines follow this paranoia trajectory that aligns with our um, most recent understandings of technology and science. But I think in the 1700s, that was just so much more a one-to-one, like you're telling me to put this disease in my body so that I don't get this disease. Yeah, yeah. It just made zero sense. Yeah, I mean it's a different moment. I, I mean we're we're still kind of getting past the era of of you know people celebrating Coca Cola and going to McDonald's and all and and then coming to terms with oh you know what I don't think this stuff is is that good for us and then there's some uh, obviously people that are making money from that don't want people to, uh, don't want the bad press necessarily. And, and, um, and that leads to, uh, this other 
camp of like everything needs to be organic and almost like an OCD kind of like everything needs to be fresh. Everything needs to be organic. That's how I'm going to live forever, which then leads to its whole other kind of corruption and snake oil and marketing that comes along with this actually isn't that organic. This actually isn't that fresh. None of this stuff. You say it so uh, well. G- GMOs aren't, everything is genetically modified and none of that makes, like, what are you even talking about? Have you ever taken yeah. a genetics class? And then and then all, all that happens right at the same time of a pandemic where now we have this situation where people are like, you know what? I'm not taking some thing with a chemical in it as you've just, like, retrained your, your generation to... Uh, to stay away from artificial flavoring and and that sort of thing, a lot of useful heuristics generally. Um, and <laughs> right, and, and right. then and then you have uh, like I'm not going to do this experimental. They always say experimental instead of rigorously studied uh, with a huge large sample group as well, but. Um, uh, I'm not going to take this chemical. Instead, I'm going to take my chance with this organic, fresh, all natural <laughs> COVID virus. That's <laughs> so fast. I've never actually thought about how, because I've often wondered, you know, as I said, that in the 1720s, they were like, this disease is scary. Why are you telling me to put this disease in my body to get mm. rid of it? And now it's chemicals. And I, I never actually thought figured out why that would be our shift because because you still are putting the disease in your body mm-hmm. and that's no longer what people rail about yeah. and i think you're absolutely right that it's this sort of organic like it, if it comes from nature it you know must be good and i often think um i was trying to do like natural supplements for blood pressure during the pandemic and um it occurred to me that there's a, a black and white thinking in the sort of natural organic world, wellness world that says, you know, if it's from nature, it can't hurt you. And I and, and I think, you know, of course, the joke you hear is like, well, anacondas are from nature. <laughs> They'll kill you really quick. But it also occurred to me that, like, if you actually do respect the value and power of like herbal medicinals then you'd be really fucking careful with them, wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, if you really thought that they could be as powerful as any pharmaceutical, then you would be persuaded by your own argument to be just as careful with them. Yeah, Um, right. Yeah, so it just seems like there's this, like, it's not thought through well enough, and there's this idea that, like, well, it's a plant. Yeah. So I can use it to cure (laughs) cancer, but it could never hurt me. And I'm like, hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right, right. If it's that powerful, it could probably hurt you if you did the wrong thing with it. I don't know, dude. Yeah, yeah. It's, whew, there's been a lot of that. I've been getting earfuls of that for a year. Um, going back to a thing that I was interested in, if you have, do you do you have a couple more minutes still? Yeah. Are you, you cool? All right. Um, yeah, I probably need to go at like around the half hour, but. Uh, oh, okay. no, I was, I was thinking like 10 more minutes if you got that in. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to, and we could probably wrap up even sooner, but I really wanted Literally, to. Literally, all I'm going to go do is drive around. I should just say it. I should be real with you. My plans for the afternoon involve driving to every bookstore in town and taking selfies with my books. So, like, that's oh, what I'm I about to have to leave to do. Oh, I got to get you out of here, Kari. That's a- <laughs> 
that's so awesome. It's such a busy dance car. Oh, that's fun though. Of course you should do that. That's great. That's your special We've day. Had so little this fun is at the time year, we're recording so. this. This is the actual day that the book's coming out. No, I gotta yes, I gotta get yeah. you out of here. I gotta get you out no, of here. No, no, no. I'm listen, trying to tell you you can totally have more uh, of my time. Listen, uh, so well what about we we touched on something that I um that I don't think was in your book and it sounded like you had something to say about it. I'm very interested when I brought up Darwinian thinking during the oh, yeah. Victoria, uh, the Victorian era. And cause I, I guess I didn't even realize exactly when the Victorian area was classic, which by the way, how do they, so this is 1837 to 1901. That's the Victorian <gasps> era. Did you look it up just now? Just to, for me? Yeah, that's what it's that's what it's classified as, according to Google, which knows everything. Um, yeah, how, I make all my students memorize how, it. What what is that like? What what was the Victorian era that made it go like? Oh, that went from oh. June twentieth. <laughs> Literally, it says on here June twentieth, eighteen thirty. Set was there a ribbon cutting cutting ceremony for the Victorian? <laughs> it's when Victoria ascended the throne, Queen Victoria. Oh, that's how yeah, dumb and then I am. She okay, kicks the bucket, that's and then, okay. then you that's just when she kicks the like that. bucket. That makes sense. Okay, well. Thank goodness. I know. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm dumb when it comes to uh, little bits of history like this. Okay. Darwinian thinking during the Victorian era. Hit me with it. So Darwin publishes his main book in 1859, which is kind of like smack dab in the middle. Um, and I teach my students to think of the Victorian as like early, middle or high Victorian and late Victorian. And High Victorian is right when Darwin publishes um, his most famous pieces. Um, and I call it High Victorian. I think today we would say like peak Victorian, where it's just like mm -hmm. they're out Victorianing themselves. They're the most caricatured version of them, their own selves that they'll be. And, and generally that means like this very deep-seated belief that white British men were truly the peak of an almighty God's plan for humanity. Mm. Um, and it sounds kind of exaggeratory, but like I can show you documents <laughs> where they literally, you know, they just say it. Um, yeah, yeah. And so Darwin. Well, there was, was before Darwin, I think the, the thing, the thing kind of before that was like a little bit like evolution but wasn't Darwinian Lamarck. thinking was kind of these centers of origin idea that mm -hmm. that um, I went on this kick uh, one time learning about this guy, Camante de Buffon. But that was like the 1700s or something like that. And and uh, but but it was it was it was before it, it still had kind of a foundation in creationism where it was like. God made, okay, so here's what happened. Evolution is clearly a thing. Things are changing over over time. They didn't have a word for evolution yet. But God still made, like, all cows descent, came from the same, like, God went, there's a uh, cow. And then they, and then other species of cows ooh. split off from that. And that's a chicken. And then other, and then made these five birds. And then every everything split off from there and that was some of the evolutionary 
ish thinking before Darwinian thinking is my understanding. But yeah, anyway. and and uh, no, that's a really good precursor because it establishes the way that um, that sort of British arrogance, which is why I think you brought this up, comes mm -hmm. out of that. Like there is a plan. And we will develop from this particular route to a particular endpoint. And obviously, we're the endpoint, right, guys? That's yeah. that in-group, out-group thinking, right? Like yeah. we've got to be the, we've got to be the purpose, right? Like this was the plan was to make us. Um, Darwin, though, as we know, well, we know it. I, I don't think this will be surprising information, but I think it will be surprising that this was what Victorians focused on. Not so much the idea that we could evolve, but the fact that so much of his justification for proving evolution came out of discussing extinction. Mm -hmm. And they were just, it was like a sucker punch to their hubris. Like they were just like, oh snap, like we could die. Like we could just like, we, we might not be the point. Yeah. <laughs> And it just, it was a big old mess. Like they're, they're basically in like an emo mess of self-pity for the rest of the century. Like it's like, shit's not okay, Shane. Like all mm. their poetry, I could, okay, I, can I read you a poem? It's like the most peak Victorian poem. It's, it's short. Of course you can. Yeah, I, I did. I've, I've read a little bit about the extinction denialism and stuff at the time. People just didn't think that it was the case it was weird because sometimes they would come across like dinosaurs or whatever dinosaur yeah. bones so they'd be like whoa was that thing still out there hey, look out for this thing <laughs> i know and then to see huge. that that or like entire civilizations could have could just be gone yeah you know it, compared to this large creature that looks so much more powerful than a human mm -hmm. it was they were just okay so this is like my favorite poem to teach to Help tell me. my students, like, if you think I'm exaggerating how devastating this was to them. Mm -hmm. um, so this is by Thomas Hardy, and he's writing this poem where basically people lost through Darwinism their sense of there being a purpose to things, um, that there was like a plan, right? So if but some vengeful God would call to me from up the sky and laugh, Thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profiting. Then would I bear it, clench myself and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited, half eased in that a power fuller than I had willed and meted the tears I shed. But not so. How arrives it joy lies slain, and why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Crash casualty obstructs the sun and rain, and dicing time for gladness casts a moan. These purblind doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. I love that. Then I would bear it, clench myself, and die. Like, I am certain I wrote a poem with that line when I was 14. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, <laughs> that's real 14-year-old kind of vibes. <laughs> And uh, I mean, I, I like how personally they're taking the idea of evolution to <laughs> just can't can't get rid of that pesky egocentrism still yes. still there. Felt it slip away for a second, fell into an existential <laughs> crisis and yes. made an existential crisis all about them. 
Uh. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly what they do. You know, they circle. And I just, yeah. it's funny because I tend to teach through like kind of joking and being a little hyperbolic. But at, at this point in the semester, I always have to read this poem because I'm like, I am not exaggerating. They were basically mm. like 14 year olds for three yeah, decades, like a whole culture of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that, that led to some of those early, um, when, uh, when you're talking about the the uh, British or whatever kind of thinking that they're the the superior ones, that was that was that centers of origin idea. So the the idea is is that the first cow, there's like one right species of cow, and then the rest, the further you get away, those cows all degenerated right. over time. Right. And so same with like there was a lot of that propaganda against America in in the beginning, and like. Thomas mm. Jefferson got into it. There was a whole like he shipped a big moose over to France one time to prove that America had large mammals too and all this <laughs> ridiculous stuff. Um but uh Well, and then they circle back and basically find a way to re-engineer evolution to say, like, well, we probably we you know white British men probably are the most yeah evolved. of course we've, and everything else is less we evolved finished. than us we so. finished the, every, yeah. everything else needs to catch up <laughs> lucky us we've yep. finished mm-hmm. evolving yep. <laughs> um, well uh, uh, Kari is there anything else that you wanted to where's a where's the best place for people to go and get your book just wherever's easiest for them or their local bookstore yeah. uh, alright if you had anywhere um, in particular I mean shop local book. always yeah yeah cool. I think people should shop local I think I'm not supposed to promote any one sure, retailer sure, over another but I will say that my college roommate ended up going on to become a voice actor and she is the narrator of my audiobook. Oh, very cool. And I really wanted that because I I speak personally a lot of the time and I wanted someone who knew how I talked. And so I think people would really enjoy like just knowing that who read it actually knows how I talk and my voice and so I think the audiobook could be a really fun Does she do Victorian accents ever within it? I haven't gotten well, to listen to very much, but she I did she text me once. She did text me once and she was like, what is this like dialect that you're writing in? And I was like, girl, I don't know. I just start like, it sounded right. But she's like an actor, right? Like she wanted to get it right. So I think she does. And then there's a salt and pepper riff in there and she had to go back and forth about whether to sing it, sing it oh, or yeah, say that's it. A, yeah. That's a brave decision. What'd she pick? Sing? I know. You'll have to get the audio book. Oh, wow. Really leaving me hanging with that one. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, yeah. So I think maybe I might recommend the audio book at this moment in time. Yeah. Well, like I, like I said, it truly is. Um, it, it's, it's so incredibly uh, accessible and, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's something that I think anyone would find interest in um even it i think I, first off i've had i've had more listeners than the average person um uh or or sorry more listeners than i thought i would that were like more covid episodes because for, for a while i was like i better spread them out people are going to get sick of being right. hit over the head with this it's all over the news huh. and everything else 
But I've had a lot of people when I have, because uh, I have meetups on Patreon and stuff, they'll, they'll say that they want more mm-hmm. COVID episodes. And so I, I just think that this is such a different take on on things and a bit a bit more um new information um that that will help reframe some of the modern things that we've gone through and are going through than the the many takes that you've already heard on the news and okay spike protein now i gotta learn what that is and (laughs) if you want to break from that but still want to hear a little bit about the um human condition going on today and some parallels with uh with the past check out the book quarantine life from cholera to covid19 with my wonderful return guest kari nixon thank you so much kari for joining me and uh, let me know when you got that new book coming out. What are you cranking out another one? You uh, already you yeah, didn't take actually, a break. I'll, you're not just you're just gonna get right I back into it's, it. I'm in a lot of therapy for my really? workaholic cool. tendencies. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I, um, I'll take some of that workaholism. Oh, I would gladly um, give it to you. You can have some of my high blood pressure too. <laughs> well, uh, well, definitely hit me up. Um, hit me up when when you're. Uh, getting toward the end of that if not before we should probably talk in the meantime but uh really uh, thanks for all the wonderful information that wasn't even in your book i feel like i got all sorts of bonus info out of you and uh yeah and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week thanks for having me All right, next week on the Here We Are podcast, we're going to be talking about, I have another guest coming on from the uh, One Health Initiative, uh, once again, kind of talking about the interdisciplinary work that they're doing to understand uh, uh, ecosystems, humans' impact on them, symbiosis, all of these uh, this web of interactions that uh, that leads to uh, different impacts on all these different fields where this one we're going to be talking about or we, we talked a bit about um, quite a bit about uh, the the sort of threats that trees face from um, from viruses and insects and insects that carry viruses and the uh, a lot of the ways in which they've evolved defenses for them and those defenses that they've evolved against uh, against certain uh, threats within their environment have not been evolved for threats outside the environment that might be brought in by things like bringing firewood to a campsite you you have your your cords of firewood at home and you're going camping and you travel hundreds of miles away and now you've inadvertently brought uh, invasive species of beetles or something like that and now uh, you've you've uh, uh, this thing takes off in in this new area potentially and it uh, it's really hard on tree health and and then can lead to in price or increase in the price of of uh, say lumber which can increase the cost of building new homes which these all these you know these cascade of effects from these tiny 
uh, little things that you'd never think about. I certainly, anytime I saw the little sign outside the campground that said, you bring uh, local wood only, I had no idea why that sign was there. And we get to hear about stuff like that next week. Cool episode, important stuff. And uh, if you uh, if you like what I do, uh, it costs money. It costs money to get this edited. It costs money to uh, get help lining up guests and organizing things and everything else. Especially now more than ever as I'm cranking out uh, Mind Under Matter and uh, lots of other projects and trying to figure out possibly touring again while keeping um, uh, this show consistent. Uh, now that I've added all these extra things to this show and exploring, possibly moving somewhere where I would set up a studio and have guests come in live is one of the big goals of mine that I want to do to increase the the quality, the audio and video, because I, I can work on stuff on my end, doing things remotely. Uh, it's it's not so easy with, you know, different academics have, uh, you know, usually just the webcam on their computer and the mic on their computer and that sort of stuff. I used to, before COVID, I'd go and do a whole big setup. I'd bring it into their office and lab or whatever conference room or at their home. And that was just audio only. Now with adding video, oof, whole big undertaking to try to do that remotely. So I'm exploring what my options are there. But all of that is to say is that this is an ad-free show. It's supported by Patreon. And so, uh, and and uh, we frankly, we just need more more support to put out the show that we'd like to. Uh, uh, we're not even talking about making a profit. Uh, we're talking about just increasing the quality of the show. We're making zero profit on. Uh, so support the show by going to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite. Thank you.